Rich, come on up. This is Rich. I'm going to let him tell you all about himself and update you on his life. Most of you know him. If you don't, you just need to know that he is uh, one of my dearest friends. He's an overseer for this congregation, meaning he does, he's not here every day, but he has authority. He prays for us. He provides counsel and advice. He uh, cares in strategic thinking about the life of this church. He has been invested in this church since before this church was planted. And, and he's been invested in my family since, uh, uh, since they were really, really little. And it's bearing fruit. I just, my heart is full for the ways it's bearing fruit even right now. And so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would bless Rich as he comes before us, that you would fill him and empty him and fill him again. Uh, that you would do what you so faithfully do through this man, which is to declare your word for your people. Lord, we thank you. We ask that you would uh, provide in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Maranatha, so good to be here with you. I do love this church. And uh, a little weepy already, so that's not a good sign for me. Uh, I do care deeply as well and uh, pray hard, and believe so much for you. And uh, man, just delighted to be able to share with you this morning. I wish I could tell you how many ways the Lord's confirmed what he's doing in me and what I believe he wants me to share with you throughout this whole service. From, man, Brian's undignified monologue, which was awesome, to uh, Jeff's prayer about revival, to the hope that we have This coming June weekend for Pentecost to come again. So many things about how this service has already been sovereignly designed by God that have just been so confirming and and filling for me in my spirit. I'm going to skip the update. You know, I, I have way too much in my heart that's more important than that. Jesus is awesome. And thank you uh, for praying for our family and for the partnership that we have in, a, in the gospel. I'll, I'll just tell you, I'm in a new uh, uh, season of ministry. Um, I am going to give you an update. How about that? So I'm still leading the Malachi Network, which we're a part of. Jeff's the chairman of our board. Uh, this is one of our anchors in the Malachi Network in church planting here. And so we're overseeing about 43 young leaders in missions and church planting across the earth. We're still doing Avalon Beach Church. We'll start our sixth season, which is just awesome. But in September, I got invited to serve a church in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania as executive pastor, but primarily focus on prayer and young adults and bring the Malachi Network with me and keep doing Beach Church in the summer. So we'll go to New Jersey on the weekends to do Avalon Beach Church. Just an awesome opportunity for ministry, but it's kept us extremely busy which we're grateful for. Time is short, and Jesus is king, and he's coming. And I want to talk about doing church in the great and terrible. That's the title, doing church in the great and terrible. I was just listening to the radio uh, yesterday on the way to a meeting here with some leaders, and the radio preacher said one in 25 verses, one in every 25 verses in the New Testament is about the end of this age, about the return of Jesus, about the day of the Lord, about the great and terrible that's coming. It is one of the most repeated themes in the New Testament. And I want to talk about doing church in the great and terrible. 
want to talk about a shift that's taking place in me because for over a decade now, I've been focused on some pretty serious stuff. And that is how woefully unprepared the American church is for the end of the age. We are not prepared for the increasing polarization that's coming. We are not prepared, and Matthew 24 is a prophetic warning that needs to be declared from the rooftops in our culture that because of the increase in wickedness, Matthew 24 says, many hearts that had been fiery for Jesus will grow cold. We're going to look at that passage in just a minute. Prophetic warning for the church. We are not prepared, and I've been preaching over and over and over again for over a decade now about the polarization that's coming, about this idea that just like the disciples were not prepared for the cross, even though Jesus said clearly over and over again, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me. And uh, you guys have got to be ready for that. The disciples would get together and again and say, I wonder what he's talking about. I wonder what he means by that. And so he'd say again, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. You guys need to be ready for that. And again, they go, man, what mystery? What could that possibly mean? They just didn't get it. And so with the exception of John, who stays beside him, Judas, who commits suicide, all the rest of them run for the shadows when Christ is crucified. They just didn't get it. How could this be? This isn't the what we signed up for. And man, I see that the American church, especially as we approach the end of the age, is going to be very similar to that. Whoa, wait, hold on here. How could all this be help happening? This polarization, this increase of wickedness, and just like Matthew 24 says, our hearts are growing, going to grow cold unless we understand the biblical truth. So I want to take you to some passages in Matthew. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 10? This has been a primary message for over a decade for me. Polarization. Matthew chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. I'm sorry, 21 and 22. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Man, serious stuff, right? Matthew 24. Look with me at this passage again about the end of the age. Matthew 24, starting with verse 9. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love, listen, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And that's been the core of my message. And the hope is for us that Jesus is absolutely the Lord of the entire universe. He's the Lord of his church. 
And right now, he's seated on a throne. And he's the center of the whole story. And he's not twiddling his thumbs, and he's not wringing his hands. He's not bored, and he's not worried. He's perfectly orchestrating the events of the end of this age so that the bride is radiant and ready for his coming. He's in charge. That, that's our hope. Now, I have been for over a decade focused on some pretty serious stuff care deeply that the church understand the eschatological purposes of God and the biblical narrative and how things are going to pan out as this increasing polarization occurs in our culture. And I've been committed to help the church be ready, just like in those letters in Revelation, the beginning of the book, where each of the letters ends with this, to he who overcomes so that we become those overcomers. It's been the core message for me. And, and, and the theme has been, we've got to remain, we've got to stand, Ephesians chapter 6. We've got to put on the full armor of God, so that when all of the evil escalates, we are able to stand. Pretty serious stuff. About a month and a half ago, I was leading a Saturday seminar for, we had a three-hour gathering in our community prayer room in Quarryville, Pennsylvania. And I had, a, before that, or the month before, I had three people come to me with questions about fasting. And I thought, well, I wonder if the Lord's in that. And I'm not an expert on fasting, but I know people who are. <laughs> and so I did some reading, and I got back into a rhythm in my own life, in that spiritual discipline. And I prepared to teach a seminar on fasting, and what happened to me is that the process of teaching that Saturday seminar on fasting and rereading a friend of mine's book, Mark Nicewander's The Fasting Key, and getting back into passages in Isaiah that describe biblical fasts, something awakened in me that I had lost in the serious business of the past decade. And it was this. The days leading up to the return of Christ, that season the Bible describes as the day of the Lord, is not just terrible, it's great. Something reawakened in me. And I realized that for the last decade, and I think the Lord's been in this, I have focused on the serious business of remaining, standing, overcoming, being ready, not having an offended heart as wickedness increases and polarization multiplies. Serious, serious business. But what began as I studied and prayed and prepared and even taught on fasting, another word came to me. Not just remain, but revival. I realized how in the early seasons of my ministry, 
Revival was such an important theme. It was my heartbeat. I wanted to see it. I, I remember sitting on a pier in my 20s on Huntington Beach reading Roland Allen's The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church, weeping before the Lord and saying, I'll give my whole life to see revival. I'll give my life, I'll give every ounce of energy, Jesus, to seeing the spontaneous expansion of the church to see revival. And man, those early yearnings reawakened in me. I'm still committed to this serious business of preparing especially the American church for the day of the Lord. But I want you to know that something is coming again from my past that's been reawakened, and it is the hope for revival. Blackaby says, revival is when God returns to his people and God's people return to God and everyone else sees the difference. It's revival. Listen to what R.A. Torrey says about revival. I love this quote. Oh, my goodness. R.A. Torrey writes, I have a theory that there is not a church, chapel, or mission on earth where you cannot have revival. Provided there's a little nucleus of faithful people who will hold on to God until he comes down. First, let a few Christians, there need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. This is the prime essential. If this is not done, the rest, I'm sorry to say, cannot be done, and it will come to nothing. Second, let them bind themselves together to pray for revival until God opens the heavens and comes down. Third, let them put themselves at the disposal of God to use them as he sees fit in warning, in winning others to Christ. That's all. This is short of being revival in any church or community. I've given this prescription around the world. It is taken by many churches and many communities, and in no instance has it ever failed. It cannot fail. God was awakening some of the seasons in my life. In 1995, we planted a church in Wilmore, Kentucky. It's that church where I met Jeff and Carol, and my heart was immediately bound to Jeff's in ministry. And we saw some of the splashes of revivals that were taking place around the world in that church. I remember one Sunday evening, Dwayne Jones is here today, he may remember this as well, where some thought they saw a glory cloud descend on that platform in the old Wilmore Holiness Camp Meeting Tabernacle where we worship Jesus. I can remember... Our worship leader, Phil, coming to me in the middle of the service and showing me his hands, and they were covered with what people described as gold dust. He couldn't explain it. It was this oily, shiny, glittery brilliance that was on his hand, and we saw the power of God moving in our midst. 
we were seeing some of the splashes of revival. And somewhere along the way, as I studied God's word, and I'm not regretting this, I think it's been a worthy pursuit for over a decade, but somehow along the way, my sense is now, I tried to be even more mature than God. Because it's serious business. And the church is woefully unprepared. And I see what's happening in my life right now is that God is saying to me, terrible days are coming and the church has to be ready or their hearts are going to go cold. They're going to get offended at the polarization and the increase of wickedness. And just like the disciples, they're going to run into the shadows during the season of the day of the Lord. But there will also be pockets and splashes of revival because this season is great and terrible. And so I'm just sharing, and it's all very, very fresh for me. I'm sharing with you right now what I sense the Lord is saying to the church in America. Be prepared. Remain. You want to be in the band that overcome. Revelation 3, the very end of that letter says, to those who overcome, listen, they get to sit with Christ on his throne. So remain. But... Man, would you believe with me for splashes of revival where the joy of the Lord causes us to be undignified? (laughs) Where the playfulness of God is relished and believed in. (laughs) Let me share this. Again, my tendency is to try and be more mature than God all the time, and I hate that about myself. And so when I heard about this, I'm going, come on, really? But I researched it, and then I had friends that were there and talked. All right, listen, here's just a sign of God's playfulness. I don't get this. I don't understand. Anybody heard about the Bible in Dalton, Georgia, that's oozing oil? All right, you need Google this sometime today. Dalton Bible oil. Apparently, over a year ago, this wonderful, wonderful Georgia man's Bible just started to produce oil. He ended up having to put it in a bag, and then the bag wasn't enough, and he put it in this big Tupperware container, and it hasn't stopped producing oil. And so now they're putting it into vials. They're not selling it. God told him, don't do that. And everybody that comes to this little storefront, Bible study can get this vial of oil and they're seeing miracles happen and they showed pictures on the YouTube video clips of Tupperware filled with oil. Apparently they had it studied and it's something like mineral oil but nothing the chemist has ever seen before. I don't get it. And a part of me wants to just say, man, we're going to have a whole church looking for gold dust but woefully unprepared 
for the end of the age. Come on. But man, I don't want to be more mature than God. And I want both. I live my life, it seems, in this spiritual either or. And God is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You have no idea how many ways I've chosen to win men and women to myself. And why would you impose the way that I've won you on everyone else? (laughs) Because the day of the Lord is great and terrible. It's both and. And certainly we must remain so that we can overcome and be seated with him on the throne. But we can, we can, we can, we can sing the song that I grew up singing. Revive us again, fill each heart with thy love. Let my soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. It's legit. It's legit, beloved. And oh, how he likes to come and surprise us and bless us and pour himself out on us. Let me share with you some of what I reacquainted myself with from the Welsh revival. September 29th, 1904. Evan Roberts attended a conference with a group of young men. During one of the meetings, Reverend Seth Joshua said something to the effect of, bend the church and save the world. Evan knelt and prayed fervently that God would bend him. God answered by baptizing him in the Holy Spirit and in fire. He then returned to his hometown to spread the flame. This is a diary of the early weeks of revival. October 31st, 1904, Evan feels God tell him to return home. When he arrives, he tells his mother, there will be a great change in less than a fortnight. We're going to have the greatest revival that Wales has ever seen. He's like 22, (laughs) which may be a key, actually. November 1st, Evan speaks to the youth about the importance of being filled with the Spirit. November 2nd, Evan shares his four steps to receiving an outpouring of the Spirit. Please listen. Number one, confess all known sin. Past sins must be put away and cleansed. Number two, remove everything that is doubtful from your life and forgive everybody. Number three, obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Obedience must be instant, total, and unquestioning. (laughs) When I read that third one, I remembered a story a friend of mine, Mark Nicewander, shared. He had a friend who was learning how to test the Spirit. And he began to understand that test the Spirit in the New Testament doesn't mean you've got to be like a scientist trying to figure out what is the Spirit and what's not. It's explore. Explore this. And so he was trying to be obedient and listen to the Spirit and obey even if he wasn't sure whether it was the spirit or the pizza the night before. And so many of us are paralyzed by stuff like that. Well, I don't know if it's God. Man, especially in America, we have such an understanding 
that we know what is Christ and what's anti-Christ. And if it's not anti-Christ, test it. Explore it. And so this guy was learning that. And he was late because of a late plane. He had a layover, and he was late to get on his connection. And they had already shut the door. The plane was getting ready to pull away. And he felt like the Lord told him to tell the attendant still at the desk that the plane was going to come back and that he was going to get to be on that plane. And he thought, well, that's just crazy. I'm not telling them that. And the plane started to pull away, and he just said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. But sure enough, something happened in that plane, and they came back, and the door opened again. And he thought, man, I wish that I had just stepped out in faith and told them, because now the door was open, and the attendant said, hey, they're back. You can get on. He said that when he got to his seat, the person just saw the plane come back, didn't have any idea why the plane came back, and saw this guy walk up and get on the plane and sit down next to him. And the guy next to him said, what level of frequent flyer are you? <laughs> Obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Obedience must be instant, total, and unquestioning. Don't let the enemy paralyze you. Test the spirit. Explore him. Number four, make public confession of Christ as your Savior. Be open in your allegiance to Christ. Listen again. Confess all known sin. Remove everything that is doubtful. Obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Make public confession of Christ. Those were the steps Evan Roberts gave to his young Adults around him. November 6, 1904. Meetings continue through the week. 60 young people are saved. November 7, the chapel is packed and people are moved to tears. While others cry out in agony over their sins, the meeting does not finish until 3 a.m. November 9th, the people of the community awake to hear the sound of people crowding into a 6 a.m. prayer meeting. November 10th, the Western Mail newspaper reports of the massive amount of people visiting the chapel in the village. November 11th, the service at Mariah Chapel is overflowing with more than 800 people. That's just the beginnings. The first couple of weeks of a revival that ultimately touched the world. So let's get to the word of God here. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Verse 14, well-known passage, but Lord, would you make it alive for us again right now? Would you refresh this well-worn passage so that it becomes real in our midst right now? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin. And will heal their land. Regional. Here's some questions. If my pe- Are you his people? Don't answer it too quickly. Are you his... I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking what you put on that hospital form when you have to declare what you are. I'm asking... 
Are you his? One of the things that has been proclaimed that I believe is heretical is that we're all God's children. You're not born into the family of God. And in fact, according to the New Testament, until you encounter Jesus Christ, you're an enemy of God. Until you, by faith, receive Christ, according to Romans, becoming adopted into God's family. You're not his child. Have you encountered Jesus in a way where you brought your sin before him in confession, allowed him to wash you and put his spirit in you? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Are you his? Are you humble? This is what I'm learning about humility. That real spiritual humility comes from encounter. You see who he is. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that the deeper you look into him, the more clearly you see yourself. Remember Peter in the boat? Miraculous catch of fish. He's focused on the fish all around him, flopping. He's never seen anything like it before. But eventually, you have to move from the gift to the giver. And he looks at Jesus. And in looking at Jesus, he sees who he is more clearly than he had ever seen himself before. And the only legitimate response he thinks is, Jesus, you've got to leave. We do not belong together. You are holy, and I'm sinful. Depart from me. And that's where Jesus, in grace, grabs a hold of the heart of Peter and says, if you will just follow me, I will make you into a fisher of men. Spiritual humility comes from encounter, seeing who he is. And in his eyes, they become a mirror of your own soul. And you understand who you are. And that it's only by grace that you belong together. Are you his? Are you humble? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face... Are you praying? Are you seeking? I'm going to share in just a moment about Duncan Campbell and his experience of revival, but I want to give you the story of how that revival under Duncan Campbell's leadership began. And it began with two elderly ladies. Listen to this. In a small cottage by the roadside in a village of Barvis lived two elderly women, Peggy and Christine Smith. They were 84 and 82 years old. Peggy was blind, and her sister almost bent double with arthritis. Unable to attend public worship, their humble cottage became a sanctuary where they met with God. 
they ended up inviting the spiritual leadership of their community to pray with them every Tuesday and Friday. And then eventually God led them to direct Duncan Campbell to some meetings that he was reluctant to go to. And I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. But I want you to see from this story the very beginnings of revival. And you can go through history and see this repeated again and again. It was in Tory's quote, if just a small nucleus of you would pray until God comes down. This is very difficult in our instant culture. There was a generation that understood what it meant to pray through. But things happen so quickly in our culture. Drive-throughs. We have drive-through funeral parlors in America in a couple of places now. Put the casket in the window, you don't even have to get out of your car. Family behind it grieving intercom just so busy but we don't have little house on the prayer anymore this is a book written 20 years ago now but the title's still appropriate he wrote a book called i think it's kimmel is his last name he wrote a book called little house on the freeway <laughs> are you praying are you going against the quick current of this culture. Tanya and I have started a, uh, under Wesley Church where we serve, they rented a wonderful office with a big room in the same building as the town's only coffee shop, the Daily Grind. In fact, there's all windows between the Daily Grind and now the community prayer room. So everybody that comes in for coffee sees most mornings, we're there from, we're every morning, Monday through Friday, Tanya and I are there from 6.30 to 8.30, five days a week. And often, there's two or three people there with us. And the community comes in to get their coffee, and they see us praying and worshiping. Never so often, somebody comes in, like, now the chief of police has come in three or four times, gets his coffee and says, hey, would you pray for me today? We get to lay hands on him. A couple of teachers in the high school come after their coffee and say, hey, we'd love for you to pray for us. A couple that was celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary said, we'd like you to pray blessing over us today. Would you do that? And so we get to do that. (laughs) You know, a lot of our leadership are frustrated that there's not 30 of us in the room. And I have to keep reminding myself that it's not as if Jesus is on a throne saying, if they had 30, Amen. How pleased he is. (laughs) The Tanya and I and Beth every Friday pray for pastors and their leaders. And with Terry on Thursdays, we pray for healing and deliverance in our county. And with Genevieve and Bob on Wednesdays, We pray for marriages and families. And with Karen, who all this is so brand new for, grew up Catholic. We pray for police and firemen on Tuesdays and first responders. And with Bob on Mondays, we pray for teachers and 
students. And I guarantee you that every one of those days, Jesus is on a throne saying, yes, yes. Are you his? Are you humble? Are you praying? Are you seeking? Are you turning from your wickedness? And Graham Lotz, Billy's daughter, Billy Graham's daughter, repeated, I think, she, I think someone else started this, but she said, here's the way to revival. You draw a circle in the ground, and then you stand inside, and you ask Jesus to cleanse all the sin inside of the circle. Again, Tari, Tori's quote, First, let a few Christians, there need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. This is the prime essential. If this is not done, the rest, I'm sorry to say, cannot be done. Are you turning from your wicked ways? Here's the last question from Second Chronicles 7.14. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? If my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Can you think of anything we need in this culture more than that? Peggy and Christine started something, 82-year-old and 84-year-old, one blind, one bent over. They asked Duncan Campbell to go to a village that was resistant to the gospel. He didn't want to, but they said, you better do it. And finally, Campbell said, all right. And this is Campbell's account of what happened. They gathered one evening in a farmhouse and began to pray, earnestly appealing to the promises God made in the Bible. At midnight, Campbell asked John, the local blacksmith, to pray, which he did for more than two hours. Near the end of his prayer, with his cap in his hand, John looked heavenward and said, God, do you know that your honor is at stake? You promised to pour water on the thirsty and floods on dry ground. I stand before you as an empty vessel, and I am thirsty. Thirsting for thee and for a manifestation of thy power. I'm thirsty to see the devil defeated in this parish. I'm thirsty to see the community gripped as you gripped us. I'm longing for revival, and God, you are not doing You're not doing it. I'm thirsty, and you promised to pour water on me, God. Your honor is at stake, and I take it upon myself to challenge you now to fulfill your covenant engagement. At that moment, the house shook violently. A jug on the sideboard crashed to the ground and broke. Those who were present said that wave after wave of power swept over the room. 
At the same time, the town was awakened from its slumber. Lights went on. People came into the streets and started praying. Others knelt where they were and asked God to forgive them. Men carried chairs and women held stools asking if there was room for them at the church. It was 2 a.m. Revival came to this last resistant town on the island. The church has to be prepared. I won't, I'll die on that hill. I will not let the prophetic warning in Matthew 24 not be a central theme for the rest of my life. But the day of the Lord is not only terrible, it's great. And Jesus is on a throne right now, and he's not twiddling his thumbs, nor is he wringing his hands. And he's perfectly orchestrating the events of the end of this age so that the bride becomes radiant. Revelation 19.5, prophetic promise, the bride has made herself ready. Radiant. A bride who remained. Overcomers. A bride who experienced revival. I'm believing for the spontaneous expansion of the church. I'm believing for wave upon wave of especially young adults in our culture who now have no understanding of a biblical worldview to be encountered by a living God. Brian, would you come and just play for a little bit? I want to share a scriptural prophetic picture that I believe the Lord wants you to have. I believe you could see this story from the Old Testament. Reenact it in Maranatha Church. Second Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Would you see this with me? See it. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha. Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. It's a widow desperate. The enemy's coming to enslave her children. It's happening all around us. <laughs> Elijah replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me. What do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all. She said, 
except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. That's become one of the best sentences in the whole Bible for me right now. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars. And as each is filled, put it to one side. All of a sudden, that Bible in Dalton doesn't seem so crazy, does it? She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her. And she kept pouring. (laughs) She kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on what is left. Maranatha, what do you have? It's just us, right? just us the spirit of the Lord is inviting you to go out and gather as many containers for the oil of Christ's spirit as you can find Don't just ask for a few. The nucleus of you would just pray until God comes down. If you would humble yourself and seek his face and turn from your wicked ways. Every container you bring into this house could be filled. June 9th is Pentecost Sunday.
would you believe? Would you believe? Remain. Overcome. And be revived. So that God returns to us and we return to him and everyone else notices the difference. Stand with me, would you please? Jesus, I pray with all my heart for each one of us here.